Hello. Let's see. Well, I want to say I'm very excited to be here with you. I've been very much looking forward to it. I enjoyed getting to meet your pastor, Nick, and uh, getting to know him a little bit, and I've had the desire to want to get to know him better. I think we both wanted to do that, and uh, talking about ways that we could probably uh, try to accomplish that, and and I'm just thrilled to have this opportunity to get to know your church better. Uh, as he stated, I pastor Emanuel Baptist Church in Coconut Creek, Florida. It's a Reformed Baptist Church there, been there for a long time, that church. I've been pastor there for about eight years. And before that, I was a pastor of Covenant Reformed Baptist Church in Easley, South Carolina, for 15 years. It was a church plant there. So you can tell I'm not from Florida by my accent, probably. So <laughs> most people in South Florida are, are transplants from the Northeast. But uh, I'm glad to have my wife with me, Kelly. We've been married for 27 years. Is that correct? Yes. I thought for a moment I'm going to get myself in trouble. Yeah, 27 years. Then I have Guy and Garrison, my 13-year-old Guy and my 7-year-old Garrison. We also have two 26-year-old daughters. They're twins, Rachel and Sarah. And I have a 22-year-old son and a 20-year-old son. And they're all either working or in school and busy and not able to travel with us uh, this week. But um, thank you for giving me the opportunity and the privilege to... Uh, minister to you this week, and I've been praying a lot about this. I trust that you've been praying. I wish that we had a lot of our people here. Um, it just worked out timing-wise. Maybe we can uh, coordinate things better next year. You, you, you folks may know that we have a youth conference going on in our church next week, and we usually have a large number of young people who come to that, and we want to make you aware of that in the years to come. Uh, and then... Um, there's another family conference that a lot of our people attended this year and had already planned to attend and had already paid to attend and so forth. But God willing, hopefully if you have future conferences, we can have some of our folks here attending with you and our two churches can get to know one another better. Uh, that's my hope and, and my prayer. All right. Well, I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles now and uh, turn with me to 2 Samuel uh, chapter 13. Now, I'm going to be reading a, a lengthy portion of Scripture, and part of the reason is that uh, I am, in this first sermon, most of you know probably from the brochures or, and the, uh, the little um, booklets that you have, that the theme, of the general theme of the messages that I'm going to be bringing is uh, the relationship of David, David and Absalom, and it covers a large portion of Scripture, and I'm kind of... In this first session, I'm kind of cramming together a couple of sermons. We're going to be covering a, a large section, and this is kind of, uh, tonight's going to kind of lay the foundation for everything that we'll be considering uh, in the rest of the week. We need to get all of the background in place so that we understand something of the dynamics of what was happening in David's life and Absalom's life that led to some of the problems that will come in the future. So, if you have a Bible, I'm going to be reading from chapter 13, verse 23, all the way to the end of chapter 14 of 2 Samuel. So if you'd like to turn there, we'll pick up reading with uh, 2 Samuel 13, 23. And we'll read all the way to the end of the 14th chapter. All right, it came to pass... After two full years that Absalom had sheep shearers in Bel Hadzor, which is near Ephraim. So Absalom invited all the king's sons. Then Absalom came to the king and said, Kindly note, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go now, lest we be a burden to you. Then he urged him, but he would not go, and he blessed him. Then Absalom said, if not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And we'll learn about the significance of that later. And the king said to him, why should he go with you? But Absalom urged him, so he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Now Absalom had commanded his servants, saying, watch now. When Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not be afraid, have I not commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. 
So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each one got on his mule and fled. And it came to pass while they were on the way that news came to David, saying, Absalom has killed all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. So the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the ground, and all his servants stood by with their clothes torn. Then Jonadab, the son of Shimeah, David's brother, answered and said, Let not my lord suppose they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for only Amnon is dead. For by the command of Absalom this has been determined from the day that he forced, that is the day that Amnon forced or raped his sister Tamar. Now therefore let not my lord the king take the thing to his heart to think that all the king's sons are dead, for only Amnon is dead. Then Absalom fled. And the young man who was keeping watch lifted his eyes and looked, and there many people were coming from the road on the hillside behind him. And Jonadab said to the king, Look, the king's sons are coming, as your servant said. So it is. So it was, as soon as he had finished speaking, that the king's sons indeed came. And they lifted up their voice and wept. Also the king and all his servants wept bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, king of Geshur, and David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And King David longed to go to Absalom, for he had been comforted concerning Amnon because he was dead. So Joab, the son of Zeruiah, perceived that the king's heart was concerned about Absalom. And Joab sent to Koa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Please pretend to be a mourner and put on a mourning apparel. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but act like a woman who has been mourning a long time for the dead. Go to the king and speak to him in this manner. So Joab put the words in her mouth. Now when the woman of Tekoa spoke to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and prostrated herself and said, Help, O king. Then the king said to her, What troubles you? And she answered, Indeed, I am a widow. My husband is dead. Now your maidservant had two sons, and the two fought with each other in the field, and there was no one to part them. But the one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole family has risen up against your maidservant. And they said, Deliver him who struck his brother, that we may execute him for the life of his brother whom he killed and we will destroy the air also. So they would extinguish my ember that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the earth. Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house, and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, My lord, O king, let the iniquity be on me and on my father's house, and the king and his throne be guiltless. So the king said, Whoever says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall not touch you any more. Then she said, Please let the king remember the Lord your God, and do not permit the avenger of blood to destroy any more, lest they destroy my son. And he said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Therefore the woman said, Please let your maidservant speak another word to my lord the king. And he said, Say on. So the woman said, Why then have you schemed such a thing against the people of God? For the king speaks this thing as one who is guilty, in that the king does not bring his banished one home again. For we will surely die and become like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away a life, but he devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. Now, therefore, I have come to speak of this thing to my lord the king, because the people have made me afraid. And your maidservant said, I will now speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his maidservant. For the king will hear and deliver his maidservant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the inheritance of God. Your maidservant said, The word of my lord the king will now be comforting, for as the angel of God, so is my lord the king, in discerning good and evil. And may the Lord your God be with you. Then the king 
And David answered and said to the woman, Please do not hide from me anything that I ask you. And the woman said, Please let my lord the king speak. So the king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all this? And the woman answered and said, As you live, my lord the king, no one can turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has spoken. For your servant Joab commanded me, and he put all these words in the mouth of your maidservant. To bring about this change of affairs, your servant Joab has done this thing. But my Lord is wise, according to the wisdom of the angel of God, to know everything that is in the earth. And the king said to Joab, All right, I have granted this thing. Go, therefore, bring back the young man, Absalom. Then Joab fell to the ground on his face and bowed himself and thanked the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord, O king, and that the king has fulfilled the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him return to his own house, but do not let him see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house, but did not see the king's face. Now, in all Israel, there was no one who was praised as much as Absalom for his good looks. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head at the end of every year, he cut it because it was heavy on him. When he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels, according to the king's standard. To Absalom were born three sons and one daughter, whose name was Tamar. She was a woman of beautiful appearance. And Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem, but did not see the king's face. Therefore Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but he would not come to him. And when he sent again the second time, he would not come. So he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is near mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. And Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and came to Absalom's house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? And Absalom answered Joab, Look, I sent to you, saying, Come here, so that I may send you to the king, to say, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me see the king's face. But if there is iniquity in me, let him execute me. So Joab went to the king and told him. And when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. Then the king kissed Absalom. All right, let's pray together and ask the Lord's help. Our Father, we are thankful tonight for this opportunity that we have uh, to spend together here at this camp, enjoying a lot of fun and good food and fellowship. And we want to thank you especially now tonight for the opportunity in an intensive and uh, concentrated way uh, to consider and to focus upon a particular portion of your holy word. All of these chapters from chapter 13 to 19 of the life of David and his relationship to his son Absalom. And as we begin to consider these things tonight, we confess our complete dependence upon the ministry of your Holy Spirit. We know that we cannot receive your word rightly with faith unless your spirit comes and works through your word in our hearts. Nor can we preach your word as it ought to be preached apart from the unction of your spirit. And so we come, our Heavenly Father, in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus, the one who has made the promise to us that if we, being evil fathers, know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And so we ask humbly, but we would ask believingly tonight for the help of your Holy Spirit. And we ask in Christ's name, amen. Now, this whole story of David and Absalom, many of you are probably familiar with some of it, it actually covers the entirety of chapters 13 to 18 of 2 Samuel and part of chapter 19. It's really amazing, in fact, the amount of detail that is given in 2 Samuel and in the life of David to this particular period in David's life. If you read the entirety of David's life, it begins uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15, Runs all the way to the end of 1 Samuel, all the way through to the end of 2 Samuel, and partway, 1st or 2nd chapter of 1 Kings. 
most of the study of David's life, uh, reading David's life, it moves along at a fairly fast clip. You may say 75, 65 miles per hour. But when you get to the story of David and Absalom, everything slows down to a crawl, to about five miles per hour. And we're given all of this detail of all of the events surrounding what led up to Absalom's rebellion against his father David, the events that followed it, uh, David's trek out of Jerusalem when he has to flee from Absalom. Great detail is given every step of the way as he leaves. Then after the defeat of Absalom, the same detail is given in David's steps all the way back. And so God's word really pays a lot of attention to this particular portion of David's life. And I, as I hope we'll see, this is a part of Scripture that is full of many practical lessons for all ages. And as with all the Bible, we also have some wonderful pictures and examples of the gospel and of God's grace shining through this portion of God's Word. Now, in this first message, our focus, as I said, is primarily going to be on chapter 14. You may, in the reading, be wondering what kind of message can you get out of this chapter. Well, I hope the Lord will help us. We're going to survey what is in this chapter, and then we're going to draw out some practical lessons from it. But before we do that, as I said, it's a bit challenging because when I've preached through this before, this section I've read to you has actually been two sermons. But what I want to do is kind of prepare the way with some background so the introduction is going to be longer than an introduction normally would be, and then we'll, we'll be prepared to get into the text itself. So, one of the things that we discover about David when you study his life is that with all of his wonderful virtues, his sincere love for God, his zeal for God's glory, his humility, his tenderheartedness, his manly courage, his quickness to be broken over his sins and to repent of his failures and sins, with all of his virtues, he was often lacking in a proper balance as a father. With David, we have a father who was much in the area of tenderness and affection for his children, and that's good, that's very important for us as fathers, but he greatly failed when it came to the fatherly discipline of his children. Now, this story of David and Absalom actually begins in the first half of chapter 13, which I did not read. We're introduced to Amnon and to Tamar, and the way that chapter is introduced, it says, Absalom had a sister whose name was Tamar. So it's really introducing Absalom, though the focus of the first part of the chapter is not upon Absalom himself. But to understand what was ha what's happening here, we need to understand a little bit about the first half of chapter 13. And actually, to understand all of the dynamics at work, you really need to go all the way back to chapter 11 and chapter 12. Let me explain. In chapters 11 and 12, we have the record of that awful period of spiritual declension, backsliding in David's life that led to a great fall into terrible sin. We all know about that. His sin with Bathsheba and his attempt to cover it up, which led to the death of her husband. And we also have the record of David's sincere repentance and brokenness over his sin. He repented and God forgave him. However, through the prophet Nathan, God also made it known to David that he would be chastened for his sins. And part of that chastening would be the consequences and the influence that his behavior would have upon his family in the years to follow. And as you come to the first half of chapter 13, we have the first installment of that. One of David's sons, Amnon, became full of lust for his half-sister Tamar. And on a certain occasion, he pretended to be sick and he asked his father to send Tamar down to his room to fix some food, good food for him. Unsuspectingly, she did, and Amnon took advantage of being alone with Tamar to attain his purpose, his wicked purpose of sexually violating his own sister. He raped his sister, Tamar. And then later, after Amnon raped his sister, and David heard about it, what did David do? Well, you'll notice if you look at verse 21 of chapter 13, it says, When David heard of all these things, he was very angry. He was angry. He was very angry at what Amnon did to Tamar. But amazingly, that's all that David did. 
He got angry, but he never did anything about it. He never punished Amnon. He just let it go. Which is important for us to understand was wrong for David first as a father in the realm of the family, but also as the king of Israel who's responsible to uphold civil justice in the land. And why did David never punish Amnon? Well, it's very interesting that some ancient manuscripts have an additional comment at the end of verse 21. The version I'm reading from simply says, but when David heard of all these things, he was very angry, and it stops there. But in the old uh, Greek version of the Old Testament that's often quoted by the apostles, the Septuagint, there's an additional comment there, and also it's found in other fragments, in a fragment of the Dead Sea Scrolls and also Josephus. They seem to assume this longer reading. For that reason, you will find it in some English translations. Uh, let me just give you the longer reading that you'll find in the Septuagint. It says, when King David heard of all these things, he became very angry, but he would not punish his son Amnon because he loved him, for he was his firstborn. Now, if that's the correct reading, it confirms, again, the tenderness of David toward his children. I don't believe it's the correct reading, but I think it's consistent with what we learn about David and his, and his, and his relationships with the children. But it does confirm his tenderness toward his children. It also shows that his tenderness was at times corrupted by a kind of sentimental, unprincipled softness that neglected to discipline them. We see it with Amnon. We're going to see it in his dealings with Absalom. Listen to what we're told about another of David's rebellious sons. It comes up later in the life of David, a young man named Adonijah. In 1 Kings 1.6, we read, And his father, it's David, had never crossed him at any time by saying, Why do you behave as you do? He was very, also very good looking. His mother had borne him after Absalom. In other words, he was a spoiled brat because David never disciplined him. So this seems to have been one of David's besetting sins with all of his strengths. This was one of his besetting sins, and as I mentioned, we're going to see it again with Absalom. So David's son, Amnon, has raped his half-sister Tamar. But now here's what's important. Tamar was also the full sister of David's son, Absalom. And now it's Absalom from this point forward all the way till the end of chapter 19 who becomes the dominant figure. There are 93 references to Absalom from verse 22 of chapter 13 where we began our reading to the end of chapter 19. He becomes, and obviously the Holy Spirit intends him to be the dominant figure and the focus of these chapters. Now who exactly is Absalom? Well, according to 2 Samuel 3.3, 3, he was David's third son. His mother was Maaka, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. Maaka was also Tamar's mother. As a king's son, he was a prince. He was an important man in Israel. We learned in the last half of chapter 13 that he had sheep. He had sheep shearers. He was wealthy. He had servants who worked for him. We also learned later that he was very handsome and good-looking. And he was also a very ambitious man, as we're going to see. So what happened when Absalom learned that his sister Tamar had been raped by his brother Amnon? Well, David's failure to enact justice in a legal and righteous manner becomes the occasion for Absalom to take revenge in a way that was illegal and sinful. After concealing his hatred for Amnon for two full years, he lays a trap for him. It was the festive and feasting occasion of sheep shearing time, and Absalom deceives his gullible father into sending Amnon to the feast. Amnon goes, and Absalom orders his henchmen to watch and to wait until Amnon uh, begins to loosen up at happy hour, and then at Absalom's signal, they rise up and strike Amnon and murder him, which accomplished two purposes for Absalom. One, his revenge upon his brother. Two, he removed one of the rivals, his rivals, to the throne of Israel. So now what was David's reaction when this happened? Well, again, it's very revealing. 
When David heard the full story of what happened, we're told in verse 36 of chapter 13 that he gave vent to his grief with loud and bitter weeping. And then we read in verse 37 that David mourned for his son every day. His heart was breaking with grief. And there again we see the tenderness of David, the affection he felt for his children. But now I want you to notice what we're told in verse 39. After we're told that Absalom fled to Geshur and remained there for three years and that David mourned for his son Amnon every day, we then read in verse 39, And King David longed to go to Absalom, for he had been comforted concerning Amnon because he was dead. And to me, that's a remarkable statement. David was grief-stricken, and he mourns for Amnon. But what's remarkable is not that he was eventually comforted. He began to feel some relief from his painful grief. That's normal. It's normal uh, for the initial severity of grief to begin to ease and to become more bearable and with the passing of time. But what's remarkable is David now longed to go to Absalom. In other words, the impression is given that after three years now, not only had David's grief begun to wear off, but his horror at Absalom's terrible crime had worn off. He appears almost ready to forget about it. But you see, and this is going to be important for our whole study of this this week. It's important for us to understand in all of this, these happenings here, there's much more at stake than David's, at stake than David's grief about Amnon and his feelings for Absalom. The rule of God's law is at stake. Civil justice in the land of Israel is at stake in these events. But just as David was angry over Amnon's rape of Tamar but never did anything about it, we're going to see that though he was grieved over Absalom's murder of his brother, he never does anything about that either. And that brings us now to our text for the time remaining. All of that is is laying the background for everything we're going to be looking to uh, at ahead the rest of the weekend. And our text is chapter 14. I want to survey the events of this 14th chapter, and I have two major headings. Again, we're not going to look at all the details. We're just going to survey it, and then I'm going to draw out some lessons. The first thing you have in this chapter is we have Joab's shrewd plan to have Absalom brought back to Jerusalem. And then secondly, we have Absalom's return and its circumstances. So we're going to consider everything in this chapter under those two headings. First of all, Joab's shrewd plan to have Absalom brought back to Jerusalem and its successes. Many of you probably know a little bit about Joab. He was David's cousin, and he was also the commander, the captain of David's army. And we read in verse 14. So Joab, the son of Zeruiah, perceived that the king's heart was concerned about Absalom. But apparently Joab also recognized that David was in something of a dilemma, a predicament. His heart is concerned about Absalom, but he's unable to see his way clear to invite Absalom back home after what has happened. Absalom was guilty of murder, and this required a severe punishment. Well, it was in the context of this dilemma that Joab comes up with a scheme. Now, what was motivating Joab? We're not told. We could conjecture various things, but we're really not told. But whatever his motive, he decides the time has come to try to do something about Absalom's exile. You remember, Absalom has fled uh, to his grandfather uh, in another region, in another area. Now, so he comes up with a plan. Perhaps he knew about Nathan's method. Uh, using a parable to confront David. You know the story after David's sin with Bathsheba and Nathan came, he told the little story about the little sheep and, and that's how he got at David's conscience. Perhaps Joab knew about that so he adopts a similar method. Not told. But let's look at his method. Notice first of all the person that he used. Verses 2 to 3. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, please pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning apparel. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but act like a woman who has been mourning a long time for the dead. Go to the king and speak to him in this manner. So Joab put the words in her mouth. Now, who this was, we don't know, but apparently she had a reputation for being wise, or, or it could be translated skillful. 
Perhaps she was known for being skillful and giving dramatic performances. So Joab sends for her. He gives her the script, and she goes before the king. Notice, secondly, the story that she tells. Now, her conversation with David begins in verse 4. It goes all the way to verse 20. Instead of going down through this in detail, verse by verse, let me just give you a summary. Well, she begins by describing herself as facing a very distressing situation. She's a widow. She has two sons. One day, her sons got into a fight out in the field, and there was no one there to intervene and break it up. One brother struck the other brother in such a way that it killed him. Well, now the rest of the family has risen up and insisted that the remaining son be executed for taking his brother's life. But this widow alleges that the family has ulterior motives. She says at the end of verse 7, So they would extinguish my ember that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remembrance on the earth. In other words, she's implying what's really motivating the rest of the family is greed, not justice. With the remaining son out of the way, not only will she be left completely childless and without any support, her husband will be left without an heir, and that would mean that when she died, all of his property would become available to the extended family. So under the guise of a passion for justice, she alleges that they were really plotting an injustice. And she begs the king to intervene. Well, David is very willing to help out. He says in verse 10 that if anyone keeps badgering her about this, bring him to me and I'll put a stop to it. And he swears at the end of verse 11, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Well, you know what's happened? David has taken the bait and swallowed the hook. And now she has him right where she wants him. Now she asks for permission to say something else to the king. He gives it, and listen to what she says. She actually begins to accuse David, verse 13. So the woman said, Why then have you schemed such a thing against the people of God? For the king speaks this thing as one who is guilty, in that the king does not bring his banished one home again. She argues, you see, that David is being two-faced. You've decreed that my banished son should be restored, but you've not moved a finger to restore your own banished son. She even implies that in doing this, he was not only acting wrongly toward Absalom, but also toward the people of God. Perhaps she adds that because Absalom was greatly loved and admired by the people. She then philosophizes a little bit, and she also throws in some religion. Verse 14, For we will surely die and become like water. She really is good at giving a dramatic presentation here. We will surely die and become like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up. Yet God does not take away a life, but he devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. We all die, David. Life is short. Absalom killed Amnon, yes, but we all die one day, one way or the other, and are like water spilled on the ground. Life is too short to hold grudges. Nothing can bring Amnon back. But you could forgive your son who murdered him and bring him back home again and make the most of the time you have. Isn't that the way God acts, David? Isn't that what God does? If you did this, you would be acting like God. He doesn't take away life. He devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. She's even appealing to the gospel and to David's own experience of God's dealings with him. God is merciful, David. He is a God of love. He is a God who forgives. Then after delivering this reproof, it's interesting, she quickly reverts back to her own situation in verses 15 to 17 to try to cushion the blow. Uh, She really is a very skillful, crafty woman. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis makes this comment. She brings up her own situation again, apparently, because she doesn't want to give the impression that her main point is the main point. Well, David is too wise to be fooled. Now he begins to realize what she's up to. And he says in verse 18, Then the king answered and said, Please do not hide from me anything. And she says, Okay. And so he asked her, Is Joab in this? Does Joab have a hand in what's going on here? And the woman answered and said, As you live, my lord the king, no one can turn from the right hand to the left hand, and so on. And she acknowledges that 
that Joab is behind this. Well, at that point, David gives in to Joab's desire. Now David has a plausible reason to do what he really wanted to do anyhow. So Joab's scheme worked through the wisdom and the skill of the woman of Tekoa. But now here's the question. Here's the question. <clears throat> Was Joab and this woman's wisdom really wisdom? Was it really wisdom? Now, a superficial first hearing might give the appearance that it was. The widow has two sons. David has two sons. One of her sons killed the other son. Absalom killed Amnon. Her remaining son must be executed unless some special provision can be made to save him and restore him. The same is true of Absalom. But it's at this point that the parallels begin to break down. Now, Davis, I think, brings this out well, so let me just quote him. <clears throat> Listen carefully. The widow's, son, widow's sons get into a fight somewhere off by themselves. One thing leads to another, and the blows of the, quote, winner prove fatal to the other. Perhaps the woman is not given enough detail, but what she does relate suggests the slaying was not intentional or with malice aforethought. It was the sad result of an occasion of mutual hostility. It would then fall under the category of manslaughter, according to Numbers 35, 6 to 34, and a number of other texts that are listed there. Absalom's disposal of Amnon, however, was a methodically planned, long-calculated act of carefully nursed hatred. It was murder, not pure but simple, and it cried out for justice, not clemency. You see, uh, brothers and sisters, the woman of Tekoa, she sought to grip David's heart by her story, just as Nathan the prophet had done earlier. But there's an important difference. The old Scottish commentator William Blakey, I think, captures that difference very well. He says, There was a worldwide difference between the purpose of the parable of Nathan and that of the wise woman of Tekoa. Nathan's parable was designed to rouse the king's conscience against his feelings. The woman of Tekoa, as prompted by Joab, to rouse his feelings against his conscience. Now, did you get that? Let me repeat it. Nathan's parable sought to rouse the king's conscience against his feelings, to get a grip upon his conscience. The woman of Tekoa sought to rouse his feelings against the better judgment of his conscience. You see, Nathan, by his parable, enabled enable David's conscience to overcome his feelings and to respond properly in repentance. This woman's story is designed to cause David's feelings to overcome his conscience and to respond, respond wrongly, and it succeeded. She even appealed to God's mercy. But she did so ignoring something very important, ignoring the fact that God's, God, of God's justice that must be satisfied. Yes, God devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. She was absolutely right about that, but what she missed is that the means God has devised are such that in no way bypass or compromise the demands of justice. Her appeal to David was for mercy in a way that ignored justice. David fell for it. Well, let's notice now the second maiden division of this chapter. Absalom's return and its circumstances. First notice David's directions in verses 23 to 24. They're interesting. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, let him return to his own house, but do not let him see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house, but did not see the king's face. Now, do you see here... There's, there's this battle going on in David's heart right now. He's still torn between the claims of justice and his desire to restore his son. Absalom can return, but he's not allowed to see the king's face. So David is still oscillating in his mind between punishing Absalom and showing favor to him. So he really does neither in a proper, in, in a proper way. David's conscience will not allow him to pardon Absalom out and out, 
but his fatherly affection for his son keeps him from punishing him. Out and out. Then notice, secondly, Absalom's description. It's kind of weird, I guess, when you're reading this, all of a sudden you have this description of Absalom. It doesn't seem to fit, but it does fit. Now listen to what it says. It says, Now in all Israel there was no one who was praised as much as Absalom for his good looks. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head at the end of every year, he cut it because it was heavy on him. And when he cut it, I just think it's interesting, the vanity you see, when he cut his hair, he would weigh it. I mean, why would you do that? He would weigh it to see how much it weighed. At 200 shekels, according to the king's standard, to Asherah born three sons, one daughter, whose name was Tamar. And by the way, she was, she was pretty good looking too, it says. All right. Now, those verses, they do seem a bit strange. Why suddenly break into this story with this description of Absalom. It doesn't seem to fit with the flow of the narrative, but here it is. We have this little clip about how good-looking Absalom is, this little clip about his family, how beautiful his daughter is. I mean, this guy is Mr. Israel, the favorite of the media tabloids, front page of People magazine. He's so handsome. His hair is so beautiful. He's so impressive-looking. And so is his family. Well, it may, it may seem to be here for no purpose, but don't be fooled. This is here for a reason. If, you, if you've been reading, if you'd been reading through First and Second Samuel, those words should have a chilling effect when you read them. Israel, before these events and before David, had already been fooled by good looks and physical appearance in the choice of her leaders. You can't help but hear in, this, in these words an echo of King Saul. And I think we're intended to hear that echo. We read of Saul, the king who preceded David, 1 Samuel 9, 2, that there was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. This impressive-looking hunk of a guy Israel wanted for their king. But Saul proved to be lacking in godly character. He proved to be a wicked man. Even Samuel, the great prophet, was almost carried away with outward appearance when he first traveled to the home of Jesse to anoint a new king after Saul. You remember the story when he saw Jesse's impressive-looking son Eliab? He thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, for the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance but the Lord looks at the heart. It's not that physical attractiveness is bad or that it's a disqualification, but one of the themes of First and Second Samuel is the danger of being enamored and deceived by outward appearance. Physical attractiveness without inward grace and true devotion to God results in disaster. And the people who choose their leaders on that basis will suffer because of it. And also, let me just say to, to some of you young folks, beware of this when it comes to choosing a spouse. Again, there's nothing wrong with physical attractiveness, but what's far, far more important is a person's character, and we're going to see this more as we get into this this week. So we have David's directions, Absalom's description. Thirdly, Absalom's frustration in verses 28 to 32. Very briefly after this, Absalom dwells in Jerusalem for two full years, Without so much as seeing the king's face, he finally gets fed up with that and frustrated with this situation. He sends for Joab. Joab doesn't respond. He sends for him a second time. Joab doesn't respond, so he sets Joab's fields on fire to get his attention. Joab rushes over. Absalom makes his complaint. He says, these halfway measures are no good. Better to be back in exile. If I've committed a crime, let the king execute me. Now, really, there, Absalom's issuing a challenge here to David, an ultimatum which shows both his unrepentant heart for what he had done and his assumption about his father's sentimental weakness. Joab agrees to speak to the king about it, and then we have, fourthly, David's capitulation, verse 33. So Joab went to the king and told him, and when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. Then the king kissed Absalom. So with nothing more than a little groveling for appearance sake and to follow protocol, the 
The chapter ends with David kissing Absalom. And Absalom, as we'll see, was completely restored as though nothing had ever happened. And Absalom was so grateful to his dad. He was so appreciated his father's leniency. No, when we come to the next chapter, tomorrow morning, he's going to take advantage of it to try to steal his father's throne. But now I want to break off and and just to draw out some lessons from this before we break off this evening. I know it's been a lot of material that we've covered, but it was necessary, I think, to do that in this first session. There's two lessons I want to underscore and open up a bit from this. And the first one is this. In this chapter, we have an example of a kind of false reasoning on the subject of forgiveness that we need to be aware of. False reasoning on the subject of forgiveness. The woman of Zekoa appealed to David's feelings and to God's forgiveness of sinners to argue for David's forgiveness of Absalom. Now, what was wrong with her argument? Well, she was right to point out that God devises means to forgive, but she was wrong to suggest that God forgives in the same way she was asking David to forgive. She was asking David to forgive Absalom by subjugating the demands of justice to the demands of love. But God never does that when he forgives sinners. When he forgives, it's never at the expense of justice. And I'll explain more about that in a moment. Secondly, she was asking David to forgive Absalom when Absalom had never repented. Although God forgives sinners, he never forgives them if they don't repent. So her reasoning was fallacious. It was false, unbiblical reasoning. Now, I want to focus right now on first on how this applies to our forgiveness of others. You remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 17, verse 3? He said, If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Now, there are three clarifications that will help us not to fall prey to the kind of reasoning that David fell prey to. First, we must always distinguish between a disposition that is eager and ready to forgive and the actual act of forgiveness itself. It's a very, very important distinction. I must always be ready and eager to forgive. I must at all times relinquish any bitter desire and pursuit of personal revenge, as we're taught in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6. I must at all times have a desire and a readiness to forgive. But that's not the same thing as actually granting forgiveness. To grant forgiveness is to make a promise. When God forgives us, he makes a promise. He promises that he will no longer remember our sins against us. He will no longer hold them against us any longer. It's a promise that God makes. Uh, To forgive is to promise to never bring it up again or to hold it against the person. But listen, until a person repents, it needs to be brought up. And they need to be held to account with the goal of bringing them to repentance. If your brother sins against you, what does he say? Forgive him? No, Jesus said rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. I may have and must have the desire to forgive, a heart of forgiveness, willing to forgive, longing to forgive. I may be praying that God would humble that person and show them their sin and bring them to me that I might have the opportunity to freely forgive them. But again, that's not the same thing as actually forgiving giving them. There's a biblical distinction to be made between those two things. A distinction between what we might, we might call an inward forgiveness in the heart or readiness to forgive and the actual granting of forgiveness. This might shock you, but Jesus did not forgive those who crucified him while he was hanging on the cross. He did not forgive them. He prayed that they might be forgiven. He prayed to the Father that they might be forgiven. And many of them were forgiven. It's very possible and probably likely some of those very people who were involved in crucifying him were forgiven on the day of Pentecost when Peter preached his message and he charged them with the death of the Messiah and they repented and God forgave them. And that was in part an answer to Christ's prayer from the cross. But Christ was not bestowing forgiveness upon them. He was praying that they might be forgiven. 
Stephen did not forgive his persecutors when they stoned him, but he prayed to the Father that they might be forgiven of what they had done. And we know, for example, with one of them, Saul, Paul, he was forgiven, but it was after and when he repented and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, and he was forgiven, you see. You see, our forgiveness is to be modeled after God's forgiveness. And, God, and does God forgive men regardless of whether they repent or not? No, the gospel that we preach is not a message in which we just go around telling people that God has forgiven them. That's what the universalist says. God's already forgiven everybody. And what we're to do is to simply go out into the world and tell people that God has forgiven them. Is that the biblical gospel? Is that what Christ and the apostles preached? No, they were sent forth to preach repentance and the remission of sins. We are declared to men that God is willing to forgive them, that He is ready to forgive them for Christ's sake, that He will forgive them if they turn in faith to Jesus Christ and repent, not that God has already forgiven them. So you see, forgiveness is always connected to repentance. And this is not only true of God's forgiveness of us, but of our forgiveness of one another. A second distinction. We must also distinguish between having a disposition that is ready to forgive and the duty, listen to me carefully, the duty of using the God-appointed means for confronting and restraining sin. That distinction. Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. David had the responsibility to use the means appointed to him, both as a father and those given to him as king of Israel, to properly confront Absalom's sin. And we have the responsibility as God's people to use the means God has appointed to us for confronting sin. When it comes to our children, that involves faithful reproof. It involves discipline. It involves at times what the Bible calls the rod of correction and other means, when it comes to our interpersonal relationships as Christians. One of those means is going to that person who has sinned against you and doing what Jesus tells us to do in the text I just quoted a moment ago. Now, when Jesus says that, there's an assumption there. It's assuming that the offense is serious enough that you just can't throw a blanket of love over. It's not that Brother John keeps coming to church and his breath smells bad from drinking coffee and you're going to confront him and rebuke him. You've got to say, if I'm going to confront this, is this something I'm willing to carry all the way through? Witnesses, if necessary, all the way. It's got to, the assumption is the offense is serious enough. You can't just throw a blanket of love over it because it's something that can't be overlooked without harmful consequences for the person or for others or for your relationship with that person. When it's a case like that, then what are you to do? We are to go to that person, point out his sin, in a spirit of meekness and gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. And if he repents, if he acknowledges his fault and asks for forgiveness, then you make the promise of forgiveness and you bury it. But now what happens if he doesn't repent? Are you to forgive him anyhow? You're to be ready to and eager to, and your heart is to have that disposition. But are you to forgive him anyhow? No, Jesus tells us what we're supposed to do when that happens in Matthew 18. You're to take others. You take witnesses to sort out. Maybe there's, there's a different perspective on the situation. You need witnesses there. Or you need witnesses to confirm the conclusion of what the problem is and what the sin actually is. And another effort to try to show the brother his fault. And if that doesn't work, what's Jesus say you're to do? Tell it to the church. And then the whole church is to get involved in seeking to bring that person to repentance. But if I forgive without repentance, what am I doing? I'm neglecting my responsibility as a Christian to apply the means that God has appointed for confronting and restraining sin and restoring the soul of that brother or sister who has sinned, helping them to face it and to deal with it. Third distinction that needs to be made. And here again we see the false reasoning David was fooled by. We have to distinguish between personal forgiveness of someone for something they've done and the punishment for what they've done that's required by the righteous laws of society. Personal forgiveness 
and the punishment required by the righteous laws of society. You may forgive someone personally, but you can't always, nor should you always, release them from the debt that they owe to the righteous laws of society. According to Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, God has established civil government to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do well. Civil government is responsible to uphold social justice and the laws that regulate the relationships of men to men and nations to nations. You see, David in our narrative here was more than just a private person and a child of God, and he was more than just a father. He's the king. He is the chief civil magistrate in the land. It's his duty to enforce the law and to punish crime. And even if I myself am not a civil magistrate, there's a distinction to be made between my personal attitude and reaction to those who wrong me and a concern that civil justice be enacted upon those who have wronged me if and when their behavior is a threat to society. For example, a drunk driver driving down the road. He, he goes to the other side of the road, he hits my daughter's car, and there's a head-on collision, and she's killed. And I find out also that this man has been charged with drunk driving a number of times. This is the first time that he's done something like this, that, he, that he's done this a number of times. He's been, he's been in jail already for drunk driving. He's had his license taken away from him, and here he is again, drunk driving without his license, and now he's killed my daughter. Well, he may come to me and ask my forgiveness, and I grant that forgiveness, and I may hope and pray for this man's repentance and his salvation. I may be willing to forgive him, ready to forgive him, I may grant that forgiveness if he comes to me for that forgiveness, but at the same time, I might witness against him in a court of law for reckless homicide because this man has committed a crime that is a threat to society. And Now, I may decide not to do that. I may decide to do it. But if I do it, if I witness against him in a court of law and press charges, it doesn't mean that I haven't forgiven him. You see... There's a distinction that has to be made between those two things. And this comes out in our personal relationships in a number of ways. Let's say you're on a softball team, a church softball team, and you have another team you play. And you're, you're, you're the shortstop, and you're trying to turn to double play. And you come over to the, the second base, and the guy coming from first base, he runs over you and breaks your leg. All right? Well, you happen to know that this guy run, runs over people a lot that he has a hot head and he's always getting into problems and scrapes on, in the softball games. Well, he comes over to your house and he says, Jeff, I'm Jeff, so I say, Brother Jeff, I'm really sorry. Would you please forgive me for, for that? And I say, yes, brother, I forgive you. By the way, here's my doctor bill. Right? I'm going to hold you accountable to pay that because you need to learn a lesson. And sometimes in disciplining our children, even though they've asked forgiveness, they still need to be disciplined because they need to learn a lesson from what they've done. Now, th th those are judgment calls we have to make. But because we hold a person to account for a crime or for something that they've done and the punishment that's deserved for that does not mean that we have not forgiven them. And that distinction needs to be understood as well. So these are distinctions that need to be made. If you don't understand these things, brothers and sisters, you're going to be easy prey for the kind of false reasoning that was used with David and the, and the kind of what I would call sentimental, flabby, unbiblical notions of forgiveness that mark our culture today. You just let some politician, you know, run around on his wife, embezzle money, you name it, and then he stands up and says, I'm sorry, and then you got Christian leaders saying we should forgive him. Well, there's, in one sense, we should have a willingness to forgive and a readiness to forgive, but we should also expect repentance. And we may want to forgive him while at the same time believing that guy needs to be removed from office because he, is, he has violated the public trust, you see. So we've got to understand those kinds of distinctions. But there was something else fallacious in the reasoning of the woman for Tekoa. And this is the last point I want to make. She pointed out to David that God devises means to forgive sinners. Right? She was appealing to the gospel. 
But she was wrong to suggest that God does it in the same way she was asking David to forgive Absalom. And that leads to this last lesson. In this chapter, secondly, we have a powerful illustration. Now, I want you to listen to me of the very dilemma that forms the backdrop of the gospel. It's right here in David's heart. David's faced with a dilemma. On the one hand, he dearly loves his son Absalom. Even though he's an arrogant and a wicked man, it's his son. He loves him. He wants to forgive him. He wants to restore him. He wants to have him near him again, pardoned and penitent and enjoying all of the rights and the privileges of a king's son. But on the other hand, justice demands Absalom's punishment. And David as king must uphold justice in his realm. Now, how did David resolve that dilemma? He resolved it by subjugating the demands of justice to the demands of love. He compromised justice in order to forgive and restore his son. Now, now listen to me carefully. Now, I say, I, and I, I say it reverently. This is the same dilemma God faced when it came to saving sinners like you and me and receiving us to all of the rights and privileges of being his children. It's the same dilemma. But he didn't solve it by an unrighteous outrage of justice as David did. How can God remain holy and righteous and just as the sovereign ruler of the universe and yet forgive and justify sinners like you and me who deserve nothing but hell? And that is all that we deserve is hell. We see that's the great question that the gospel addresses and answers. False gospels, false religions have never been able to solve that dilemma, that problem. When they attempt to do so, it's either by sacrificing justice or it's by sacrificing grace. And that's why man's religions will never satisfy a conscience that has truly been awakened to its sinfulness. They bring, they bring no solid peace to a soul that's aware of its awful sinfulness and of the hell that it deserves. Only the Christian gospel has the answer to that dilemma. God put infinite wisdom to work to devise a way to remain just and yet to save sinners. And that way, my dear friends, is the cross where Jesus Christ suffered and died as the atonement for sin. God the Son took upon himself human flesh and suffered and died in the place of sinners. He assumed our guilt and he was punished by God in our place. He fulfilled all of, the, all of the, the demands of God's law and he exhausted all of the claims of divine justice by his blood and his agony upon the cross for all those who put their trust in him. God forgives in a way that doesn't ignore the claims of justice but fully honors them. On the cross, holy wrath and tender love meet in one and the same divine act. Righteousness and mercy kiss each other. Amazing grace and holy justice meet together in the bloody agony of the Son of God. As one has put it, justice rejoices because sin has been punished, and grace rejoices that the sinner who repents and believes has been freed forever from condemnation. Bless his holy name. That's our hope. That's your hope, my friend. If you're here at this, this family camp this week and you're not a Christian, your only hope, the only way of salvation is this one way that God has provided in His Son. A way in which God's justice against you, His wrath against you for your sins, is satisfied in the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. And if you believe that, and you run to Christ, and you embrace Him as your only hope and your only Savior, willing to turn from your sins and to follow Him as your Lord, He will save you. And you don't have to think, well, God can't save me. My sins are too great. It would be unjust for God to save me. Well, it's important for you to know that God saves in a way that does not compromise his justice. Christ suffered in our place that God might remain just and yet the justifier of those who believe on Jesus. Well, I thank you for your attention tonight. I know it's been a little long and a lot of material covered in one sermon, but I appreciate your attention. Let's pray together. 
Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity to introduce our theme for this week, and we do pray that you would help us to glean everything that we can from this period of David's life and the days to come. Tonight, we thank you that we've been enabled to wrestle with some of these questions about the nature of forgiveness in our relationships with others, and also the dilemma that forms the backdrop of the gospel. Oh, our Father, we pray that you would use what is said tonight to open our eyes to a deeper appreciation for what Jesus Christ has done for us, a deeper understanding of even the heart of the God who has saved us at such an infinite cost as the shed blood of his own Son. And now we commit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen.